Earth is pretty scary because you're going to die, but then when you die and go to heaven, it's not lovely because dinosaurs are there. That's even worse. Hello, and welcome to Fear Itself, with me, Cressida Bonus. In this podcast, I'll be asking people from all walks of life about fear to find out what it can teach us about ourselves and the world around us. We'll discover how fear limits them, how it motivates them, and how they find the courage to face it head on. But before we begin, I want to tell you about this week's sponsor, Playing With Unicorns, a new weekly live streaming show on startups, entrepreneurship, and venture capital. The show is hosted by Fabrice Grinder, serial entrepreneur and co-founder with José Marín of FJ Labs. FJ Labs is a hybrid venture fund and startup studio that reflects the entrepreneurial and investing skills of the two co-founders. Both Fabrice and Jose started to build their first venture-backed startup in 1998. Along their journey, they started investing in other startups as business angels. In 2013, they decided to join forces in a more structured way and started FJ Labs. Since then, FJ has invested more than $300 million in 600 startups with more than 200 successful exits already. The objective of playing with unicorns is not to be mass market, but to help internet entrepreneurs understand how to build scalable venture-backed startups. Playing with Unicorns is streamed every Thursday at 12pm EST on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter and Twitch. It is fantastic and I have learnt so much from listening to this show. My guest today is presenter and entrepreneur Jamie Lane. Since starring in Made in Chelsea, Jamie has gone on to appear in Strictly Come Dancing and he's even started his own sweets company, Candy Kittens. Unsurprisingly, Jamie isn't a person who is confronted with fear very often, to which he credits trusting himself and his instincts. In this episode, we explore a mental health disorder that clouded Jamie's mind like a fog. We find out how he was able to dance so fearlessly into the finals of Strictly Come Dancing, and we also discover how he turned what could have been the worst moment of his life into his best. To begin, Jamie and I reminisced about our time at Leeds University together, where he was, like today, a bit of a rule breaker with immense dreams and someone who always makes me laugh. Hello, Jamie. <laughs> was I such a terror when I was at university? Was it really that bad? No, you weren't. You just always did things a little bit differently. God, do you know what's... <laughs> and you always got away with murder. I don't know how you did it. You just got away with everything. My, my reports... My reports. By the way, hey, Chris. Hello, everyone. Sorry, I didn't say hello. <laughs> hello, everyone. Welcome, Jamie. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Um, my, my reports at school, I, I went and did a talk at my old school, which is called Radley, and they asked me to go and do that thing where you, you, you talk to the school, basically. Um, and I was there, and I thought, well, I'll, what I'll do is I'll read my reports out to all of the people in the auditorium, and that will be quite funny because they'll understand what I was like as a child or as a kid, et cetera, et cetera. And I was going through my reports, and they were just awful. I was like, really? Are they this bad? And one of the reports said, getting cross at Jamie is like drowning puppies. And I was like, <laughs> I think it's because I always got away with stuff because I was charming. I don't know what it was. You did at uni. You did, Jamie. You did. And none of us did. And you always did. One day, I don't know if you remember this, but we were in a lecture room. And I turned to you and I said, 
Jamie, what do you want to do when you leave uni? And you didn't even have to think about it. And you said, Cress, I'm going to create a global sweets brand and I'm going to call it Candy Kittens and it's going to be everywhere. And I laughed, not because I didn't believe you. I did believe you, but because I thought you it was did so not believe random. Me. No, because I believe you. Because if you honestly thought, if you, if you thought, I, thought I actually believed so myself, <laughs> <laughs> and what I wanted to say was, a lot of people I think who who have these ideas, they stop at the first hurdle or the first obstacle because they think, "Oh, I'm not going to be able to do that," or or something happens and they think, "Oh, someone's got a better idea." But you are someone who I just doesn't feel like you ever do that. You just you just push straight through. You just get on that horse and you ride that horse to the end <laughs> oh, oh i ride it while it's bucking <laughs> i just keep on yeah. going but do you ever fear the obstacles that that might stand in your way like so many of us do your podcast on fear is such a great topic because i think everyone thinks of fears as in like phobias right you go like oh, spiders and stuff like that. but fears are so much deeper than that i think you know woody allen said once that 50 percent of success is just turning up and it's so true, right? It's basically where what people think is that people won't start something because they think that if they start it, it's going to fail. And so they actually just end up talking themselves out of the situation. For me, rightly or wrongly, I don't really have that. I am deeply insecure in lots of ways. But for some reason, I have a, I have a sort of idea in my mind that I can sort of do things if I want to do it okay for example we strictly come dancing I wasn't a good dancer right I, I've never danced in my life but I said to my mum all the time I'm gonna win it she was like what do you mean you're gonna win it I, I honestly thought that I was going to win I just thought that I was and I think that if you have that sort of blind attitude towards things I think that it gives you a better footing because you're not scared of the fa- I don't think about failure and also, I don't really fear failure because I don't... What's the worst that can happen if you fail? You said earlier that you're someone that, you know, worries about what people think and upsetting people, hurting people's feelings. But in order to do what you do, you know, something like Strictly, for example, or to do reality TV, I would be hopeless at that because I'd be so self-conscious and quite shy and I wouldn't say a word and I'd probably be fired on the spot. Um, but something <laughs> like that, you surely you get scrutinized all the time i have a deep deep imposter syndrome like lots of people do you think that things aren't good enough why would anyone want to listen to what you're recording or watch what you're doing or eat what you're selling so you have that but i was good at reality tv for example because i i'm i really wanted people to like me if i'm totally honest i i was so desperate for people to like me all the time like lots of people have such a people pleaser in that way that I was very good at it because I was the most talkative or I was the loudest or I always made the jokes because I was trying to gain friendship but it's a it's a sort of double-edged sword right because I was doing it because I wanted to make friends but and be loved but at the same time I was so concerned about what people thought of me so I did a great job at it, but then also on the other side of it, I was so concerned what the feedback was going to be. And I still am, you know, even with something like Strictly, I have a very strong um, sense of 
myself, right? So I, I believe that I can do things if I put my mind to it. But I'm always concerned that people aren't going to appreciate it or like it or respond to it in a positive way. So it's strictly, I knew that if I put my mind to it, I'd be good and I would thought I was going to win it. I was so afraid that no one would actually like me. And that's my biggest fear. My biggest fear in life has always been about being liked and being loved and the fear of abandonment, fear of people leaving. I know that you have recently talked about being diagnosed with depersonalization disorder, which actually is something I've never heard of. Can you explain a bit more about that and what triggered it? Perception is a, a, like a marvelous thing with all with everything. And this is why I suppose the sort of mental health and thing is so important, right? Because it's the inside scarring that people don't see. And this whole lockdown has really hurt a lot of people. Um, in terms of their mental health and and I really feel for them because I experienced a lot growing up and mine was mine was sort of heightened anxiety I was um I was an anxious child right I told you one of my fears which we'll speak of I'm sure uh, later which um sort of stresses the fact how like anxious I was as a kid but I yeah I, I basically when I was 22 years old or 23 years old I started doing this tv show made in Chelsea and um, I didn't really know where my life was heading I didn't know what the what I wanted to do in it it was there was no structure there was no security and I was probably I was indulging in in going out late nights and burning the candle at both ends and blah blah and all that kind of stuff and I had a panic attack and I had a panic and when people say that you have a panic attack right it's the you you know that's it's really scary and you think you're dying my panic attack lasted for like seven hours just didn't stop I thought I was dying for seven hours wow it was awful. I watched, was watching The Voice and the guy in The Voice said he had bronchitis and it triggered something in me and I f- went into a full-blown panic attack for seven hours. And after that panic attack, I read a book and all you listeners should, should read it if you have anxiety. Um, it's called The Anxious Man by a guy called Josh Roberts. And it is so well written. It's a small little book, but it basically talks to you in the way that you have never been able to describe what you felt. And a lot of the time, people have experienced the same things that I'm saying, this sudden urge of a panic attack. And then afterwards, I had this severe panic disorder, which I didn't tell anyone about. I didn't tell anyone about. I was still doing this TV show, trying to give perception of I was fine and happy. And I, I couldn't go to the gym. I couldn't go outside. I couldn't do lots of things. So I was so scared I was going to fall into this, this panic attack. And I was standing in the shower one day and I was feeling so horrible and anxious. And I just honestly, for six months, it was awful. And I finally, so I started crying in the shower. Sounds very morbid, this. But I started crying in the shower. I said, what's wrong with me? And it was the first time I'd said it out loud to myself. And from that, because if I'd said it out loud, it would become a real thing. And so I didn't want to say it out loud. So I finally told my parents about it. I got taken to the doctors. They said, yeah, you just got, you're, you're in panic mode at the moment. You got the flee or fight syndrome and your adrenaline's going through the roof and so I had to start to look after my body and a little bit and calm down and not go out as much and sleep a little bit and just rest and it, and it cooled down and but typically I was 23 years old and I was on a tv show and I thought I was famous and I was going out to nightclubs all the time and all these different things so then slowly by slowly I I started to you know have this panic disorder and and I was very anxious, but what I used to do is whenever I go to social situations or anything, I would just drink alcohol because that would just cover it up, right? So all of my insecurities and stuff. And at 27 years old, I was, I was, I was, sitting, um, I was sitting in a restaurant with my friend and I was very stressed, very anxious. And, and I was going out with a girl at the time that we just weren't meant to be together and everything was just, it was just really hectic, drinking too much, all these different things. And... And then suddenly it was like a fog that went over my eyes. It's literally like something clicked. It was like a fog over my eyes. And I was like, what the hell is this? And the only way to describe it, it's like you're in a dream. It's like you're in a dream. 
you don't really know if you're dreaming or you're awake. And I was like, this is weird. And it was a bit shocking. And I didn't feel that panicky, but I just felt a bit odd. I just didn't feel quite right. And anyway, I went to bed that night and woke up the next day and opened my eyes. And there was this fog still there, this sort of dreamlike sensation. And I was like, what is going on? That lasted for about two weeks. And I was feeling not great. I was still feeling very sort of socially anxious and stuff. And there was this fog and I just didn't really know if I was awake or asleep. Sounds very bizarre. And I went to a therapist. The therapist then said, go to a psychotherapist, went to a psychotherapist. And the psychotherapist diagnosed you with depersonalization. And I said, what the hell's that? And he said, well, you get it when you um, have had PTSD, when you've had severe depression, when you've had severe anxiety, when you um, are incredibly stressed, uh, or you have it when you um, have psychosis. So me being the catastrophier, I went, well, I've definitely got psychosis. That's what it is. I'm going mad. So for the next, next six months, I thought I was going mad. Um, I thought that was it. I was going mad. And every day I'd wake up thinking, well, this is the day that I lose my mind. And it was horrendous. This fog-like sensation, this dream-like sensation didn't leave me for about six months. Until after six months, I just finally said, well, this is me, me for the rest of my life. And I went on holiday. Um, and I relaxed for the first time, I don't know in how long. And it was like a curtain just suddenly removed. I was playing backgammon with this girlfriend that I, we didn't particularly like each other. <laughs> and we're playing backgammon together. And this fog finally lifted. And I said to her, I said, oh, my God, it's gone. She said, what? I said, that dream, it's gone. And till this day, I think it's one of the happiest moments of my life. But the problem is, is then when you come out of that, you then have the PTSD and the sort of fear that you're going to go back into it at any point. And then I, I talked about it and I, I said about it and all this different stuff and people really resonated with it because a lot of people have experienced it. Um, but it, it sucked. Yeah, it really sucked. I don't know if I'm speaking out of turn here, but I saw you a while ago at a, oh, I think it was a wedding or something. And I remember looking at you and thinking, oh, you just don't seem, you don't seem yourself. And I know we don't see each other as much as we used to when we were at university, but I thought, oh, there's something doesn't feel right. And I remember afterwards thinking, I wish I'd just gone up to you and asked you how you are. And I think that sometimes all it takes is just someone to say, how are you? Yeah, it's so funny, Chris. It's so true. You do in life, you should just reach out and say, how are you? And are you okay? And, and it's that cheesy saying and that typical thing, but really asking people how they are, it makes a huge difference. And actually it saves lives a lot of the time. Mm. And I think also, um, you said you said earlier about inside you were, you you felt that you were scarring and that people don't see that and if if you were to look on your instagram and social media you are you know you're jokey jamie you're so funny you're so lively you're so up all the time and maybe you know you're not actually all the time yeah well, well i think that's exactly it so i look the, the thing with me is that i i really love life right i think life is amazing and my girlfriend now says it to me that she says your normal is everyone's like heightened experience, right? So my normal is like 100 miles an hour, but my sort of real. So when I feel it's less than that, I don't like it. Also, I, I, had so, I have sort of, I suppose, put pressure on myself that my, my USP, the thing that makes me me, right? And I thought this is for a long time, so I put pressure on myself, was being this fun, energetic, talkative, engaging person. So when I wasn't that person, I thought I lost my sense of self. And it brought me back to when I was... 18 years old, 17 years old, and I was a rugby player and I damaged my knee and I could never play sport again. Taken away from me. That moment, that sporting ability was taken away from me. And so that then reflected in later life when I suddenly had this 
mentality where I could only focus on my anxiety or focus on this depersonalization. So I couldn't focus on being fun and energetic and stuff like that. So I had this juxtaposition being, being trying to portray myself as this person, but not feeling that person at the same time, which I think a lot of people resonate with. And the problem was, is that because I really loved life and I had so much fun with it, when I wasn't loving life, it was such a horrible feeling because I was like, but why? Why am I not anymore? What's going wrong? And I'm so used to a quick fix. I watch YouTube, I get entertained, I have a drink, I get drunk, you know, all these different things. You, you drink, take a Nurofen, you feel better. But with something to do with your mental health, it's not a quick fix. And I wanted it to be a quick fix for so long. I wanted to be ready. Give me something, you know, how do I do it? I refused antidepressants, refused anti-anxiety pills, refused all these different things because I just didn't want to take them because I was like, well, what's the point? No, there's nothing wrong with me. And it was the way that I was living my life. And the, the, I fundamentally think that my hardest one was that I joined a TV show. I had all these great friends, universities, we know, Chris, you know, before that, all these friends. And, and I had rejected friends and family members. And family and friends are like gardens. You have to water them to make them grow. And I had been so focused on being famous and succeeding in my career and going out and partying and kissing girls. And I had just ignored what was most important is friendship, loyalty and family. And so then what happened was, is that we would go to these weddings or go to these parties and I hadn't connected with as many people. So I felt very left out. And so then I was in this limbo period where I really missed my old life, where I was connected with all my friends and I wasn't quite in this new life. So I was stuck in the middle. And that leads to incredible social anxiety because not only was I not feeling great at the time, I was feeling incredibly anxious, and, you know, but also I wasn't really that connected with individuals anymore. So what I had to do after my depersonalization and all this thing is really change my way of life. Socrates says there's two levels of happiness, the lower level and the higher level. People try and get the lower level, which is fame, wealth, power, all these different things. When they reach it, they, I wonder why they're not happy. It's a sense of pleasure, right? That's what it is. The higher level is friendship, loyalty, family, love, trust. And when people have that, then they are happy. You know, there are sort of four fundamental things in life to make you happy, right? This is what they say. One is having a job that you like. The second one is having a monogamous relationship. Third one is having friends and family that you actually, you know, love and you speak to. And the fourth one is feeling like you're having an impact on someone's life or on the world. And I wasn't really having any of that. I didn't really have my friends that were close to me anymore because I'd rejected them. I had rejected my family. I wasn't in a monogamous relationship at all. And I loved my job, but I was so afraid it was going to go all the time. So I couldn't feel secure in it. So I was in floating around this area where really not wanting, knowing what to do. And actually what I then had to do is I then had to expose myself to situations, say sorry to people, say sorry, not verbally, right, but with actions and had to rebuild relationships and things like that and realize I'd done some things wrong. But also, I just do want to before, you know, it sounds like, oh, poor me and stuff like that. I led myself to these situations. No one forced me, right? I wasn't, I didn't have a terrible upbringing. I didn't have these different things. I, I just made silly choices and selfish choices. But reality TV, I mean, I know a lot of people have come out of the other side with, you know, really struggling with their mental health. Do you think, Made in Chelsea was the real trigger for that because I wonder if reality TV is going to continue, which obviously it will because it's very popular. What has to change? Because it feels like this is happening all the time. You, I, I don't think, in my, this is my personal opinion, you can't put any blame on production companies or channels or choices that you make. Yes, perhaps, you know, making a choice when you're 18 years old or 20 years old or, or a bit older to go into a reality show, maybe you're not at the right age, maybe there should be an age limit, right, to do it, like smoking or cigarettes or whatever it is. But 
I think the real issue with reality TV is, and I'm, listen, I did it for 10 years and it's given me this life and, um, and it's hard, right? I, I, you know, if I said to my younger self 10 years ago, this is where you're going to be in 10 years time. Do you really want to do that? I'd be like, oh, that's tough, right? You have to really work at it um, in order to get some place. But I think the real problem with reality TV, and this is a problem I think with TikTok and all these different things, is that it's the obsession with being famous and once you become famous, you're then just famous. You're not famous for playing an instrument or being in a band or painting or acting. You're just famous for being famous. And that doesn't really give you anything. So you have to really understand what you want to do. And I was, I think, I, I think maybe I said this to you. I, I went to um, an agency. I went to James Grant Agency at the very beginning before I started Main Chess because I knew I just didn't want to be a reality star. I said, oh, I just want some advice, hoping they would sign me. They're now YMU. And I sat on the rooftop with one of the owners. And he said, look, Jamie, we can't sign you. We don't know what you're going to be. You're a reality star, blah, 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 all these different things. He said, but I got one piece of advice for you. When you drive back to Leeds University, uh, don't veer off to Manchester, go straight to Leeds. Know where your destination is. And so from that moment, I said, OK, fine. So whatever I've done in life, I've always known where I was going to go. I knew that I wanted to be a presenter. That's what I said from the very beginning. With my sweets, I knew I wanted to make them the best sweets possible. So we made them vegan and gluten-free and all these different things. So if you know where you're heading, you kind of don't get lost. But the problem is, is with reality TV, like Love Island, all these different things, it's a wonderful experience, but you've really got to know what you want to do with it. Because otherwise, you're just going to come out famous, and then you're going to be offered all these deals and all these different things. You're going to take everything that's on the table. And then the problem is, is that then starts to not be as regular, and it starts to, you're not as the most famous person, the most liked, because actually novelty wears off. And I think that's when your mental health starts to decrease. said that the fear of not being loved and, and not being liked mm. really um, adds to that. <laughs> but as a child, did you feel, did, do you remember feeling that as well? Because you said that you're, one of your childhood fears um, <laughs> was, is, was, sorry, dinosaurs <laughs> in heaven. And I'm wondering, has that yeah. got anything to do with not being loved, not being liked and being abandoned? And, <laughs> and really, I want to know, what is that about? <laughs> yeah. So I so I have yeah, I've always wanted to be loved. Always. And that's such a bad thing to be, you know. And it's even worse if you're putting yourself in a position to be judged and ridiculed by people, right? You're putting yourself in a situation to be not loved. And so it's such a it's such a juxtaposition. Um yeah, I, I'm a real people pleaser. It, it, and it, that's in good ways, but it also comes with this bad. It means I'd make plans and have to cancel them and all these different things. And I just wasn't reliable in so many ways. That's so true, is that we kind of, a lot of the time, and I've noticed this from interviewing different people, is that sometimes we, we go in, we move forward into our fears rather than moving away from them. So your fear is not being loved, not being liked, being abandoned. And yet you've chosen a career where you're putting yourself up for being judged and not being liked all the time yeah because I think it's because you want to be validated right you you want to feel like you are loved so you do a reality show and then you walk into a nightclub in Birmingham and people are screaming your name and you think oh I've, I've cured myself this is it this is what everything I've been after and it's not right it's not it doesn't it doesn't work that way um as a kid I was always the one my mum always says that I you, you know you'd say to little kids oh come and give me a cuddle and a kiss and they would go no no I was always the one who'd run over sit on your knee and give you a cuddle and a kiss I loved attention loved yeah, I can, being cuddled I can imagine yeah 
<laughs> yeah, 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 all the time. <laughs> but my fear of, no, my fear, this is, see, this is, I was so conscious of being popular as well. I remember at five years old being conscious of being popular. Like, that's bizarre. You shouldn't be that conscious at five to think that. But I did have older sisters who were always talking about being cool, and so maybe it was ingrained within me. Um, and they were, you know, much older, so 13, 14. But... No, I, I used to watch The Lamb Before Time and, you know, with sharp tooth. Oh, yeah. So, so this is the dinosaurs in heaven fear. <laughs> yeah, this is the dinosaurs in heaven. And I used to watch Lamb Before Time, which is just, God, amazing. And, um, I, you know, the dinosaurs died. They, they got extinct and they went to heaven. But dinosaurs were scary. And so it was my fear of dying. I had this fear that I was going to die, this catastrophizing that I was going to die. Not only was I going to die at some point, that was what's going to happen, but also when I go to heaven, there's going to be dinosaurs. And that was even scarier. So earth is pretty scary because you're going to die. But then when you die and go to heaven, it's not lovely because dinosaurs are there. That's even worse. So <laughs> it's a really weird thing for a child to think, right? Why you think you should be playing with Play-Doh? But I was such an overthinker, even when I was a kid. You know, I would catastrophize. And if that's not screaming anxiety, I don't know what it is. So were you, <laughs> so were you scared of dying? Yeah, I was scared of dying. I was more scared of my family members dying. I didn't want people to die. It was the fear of people leaving me. Yeah, a lot of people have said that on here. I had the same. Yeah, you didn't want people to go. Where are you going? And so then when my parents got divorced, it kind of solidified what I'd always feared. Of course, that was going to happen. It was inevitable. You know, someone's always going to leave. They're always going to disappear. And that's why with friendships, I was always so scared. And that's why it was so weird that I was so scared about friends leaving me and not being liked because, oh, my God, if I'm not liked, they're going to abandon and leave me. But then I pushed people away anyway by accident because I was so focused on myself. Mm. Jamie, I had to, I've said this before in another um, chat, but I had to, I was obsessed with turning the light switch off three times and I had a voice in my head that was saying, if you don't turn the light switch off three times before you go to bed, then something terrible will happen to your mum. And this went on for years and years. And sometimes I thought, oh, just don't do it. It's just a voice. But the voice is so strong. I thought, but what if something did happen? Yeah, yeah. And totally. it would have been my fault because I didn't turn the light switch off three times, which sounds totally crazy, but it was a real, a real thing in my head. Chris, I can challenge you on that. I, I, I would have to go to the bathroom. Like I had to say, I was so scared about peeing the bed because I used to pee the bed a lot. That I'd always had to, and I still have it now. I have to go and take a pee like five times before I get to bed. But I would go into the bathroom and there'd be a perm above the, the loo that said, please remember, don't forget, never leave the bathroom wet, nor leave the soap upon the floor, and leave the bath an hour or more. I don't know if you ever heard yes, that perm. Yeah. Yes. yeah, yeah. I would have to recite that every single time I went to the bathroom. And if I made a mistake, I'd have started again. <laughs> that was really intense at 2 a.m. in the morning when you take your B. And not only that, Mrs. Skarda, who's my teacher, when I was, I don't know, seven, six, she told, told us a prayer that we'd have to do every single night before we left the class, which was, Lord, please keep us safe this night, secure from all our fears. May angels guide us while we sleep till morning night appears. Amen. That prayer stayed in my head that every single night before I went to bed, I'd have to say it. And then I would have to say after it, I had to go, that goes for mummy, daddy, Sandra, Emmy, Tash, Gems. And I'd have to do that. And that went on for years. I could yeah. not go to sleep without doing it. It's terrible. Yeah, and it's something now that we talk about. But at the time, I thought, you know, you d it's just it's not... Terrific. It's something that you just wouldn't say because as a little person, 
you think, God, am I? What's wrong with me? Why? Yeah, 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 why yeah, do yeah. I have these really strange, dark thoughts about losing people? Oh, but do you know what's so interesting, Chris? Is that um, we were so innocent back then, and we talk about innocence broken by experience. We weren't learned. So if someone has come to us and said, "By the way, that's anxiety." We would have gone, what do you mean this anxiety? Then we would label it. Because we didn't label it, we just went, oh, brushed it off the next day. And so there's something interesting about being innocent and not being experienced. Now, Jamie, coming on to your biggest fear today, you said to me that your biggest fear is not accomplishing life, which for many people listening will be quite the surprise given the immense success you've had. Do you think that in some way that fear is what has driven your success? Yeah, I think totally. I think it goes back to the same thing you said to me, Chris. You remember sitting next to me in our lecture hall, you saying, Jamie, what are you going to do? You know, I was one of those people always growing up that no one had faith really in that I was going to achieve things. It wasn't so much achieving things because I was really good at sport, but then sport was taken away from me. But I was the I was the sort of uh oh case. That's what everyone thought. And you can admit that as well, Chris. Everyone would be like, What is Jamie gonna do? You know? Leaving theatre leaving Leeds Theatre Performance with a two two just wasn't really that high brow. <laughs> you were always late as well. That's what I wanted to ask you. Why are you always, always late. late for lectures? What were you doing? <laughs> Nothing. I wasn't doing anything. It's just It's like, oh know, that Jamie, terrible. he's late again. And you never, no one ever said anything. Whereas if anyone else had no. been late, it would have been a real yeah. thing. Whereas you just swanned in. Why was that? Why did, why did people not challenge me? I don't know. I don't know. I had that from my whole life. People never challenged me that because much. Because you're charming, Jamie. I think that's why. Oh, I don't know what it is. It is. But, um, but it's like everything, Chris, right? So when I say like accomplishing life, People sort of create well, that must be down to sort of just success, right? In terms of like starting business stuff. Like that. It's not so much that. It's it is that I do. I want to. I, I want to succeed, but I want to succeed in all areas. I you know I want to have a family and I want to have kids, and I want to be a good dad and I want to you know have a have a business that I'm proud of. And you know I met this guy once who uh, said that he he basically was working with JP Morgan and he didn't like his life and he was earning loads of money. He went to Thailand for a trip. He went just traveling around Thailand for a couple of weeks. And he met this guy on, uh, on a sort of coach thing, an American guy. And the American guy sat next to him and said, hey, what are you doing? And he said, oh, I'm just doing this traveling. He said, who do you work for? He said, JP Morgan. He said, oh, you must be earning a lot of money. He said, yeah. And he said, are you happy? And the guy said, well, you know what? I'm not happy. That's why I'm doing this traveling. He said, okay, we'll do the rocking chair technique. You're sitting in a rocking chair when you're 90 years old and you look back at your life. Are you going to be happy with it? You're going to want to change things. You, you wish you'd done something differently. And he said, yeah, I am at the moment. So well, then change it. So he came back to London. And he set up a company called Change, Please. And it's a company where he sells coffee to people in London. And he only hires homeless people and he houses them for a year. And it's an incredible business. He's happier than ever. And I think that's what life's about. Is about it's, people are in this rat race to make all this money and, uh, and all these different things. But actually, it's just about... It's about achieving things that actually you look back on and you go, God, I'm proud of doing that. Thank God I'm proud of that. And you don't really, and that's what I think I mean about accomplishing life. I don't want to make mistakes. What has been your, what has been your biggest mistake, would you say? <laughs> Truthfully, uh, the way I behaved in my relationships when I was younger and treating my family bad, I think. But, you know, I, I, was, I, I, was, I just misbehaved with people that I loved, took, it for, took advantage of their love. And I think that's bad. And I regret doing that. 
But, you know, at the end of the day, I was the one who was hurt by it all. I hurt myself at the end of the day. Mm. So, Jamie, when you come to your fears, how do you how do you face them? How do you conquer them? I think it's about exposing yourself to them. I think exposure, exposure. You know, if you have that fear of walking across three drains, right? You can't possibly walk across them because you think I the have that, gonna... by the way. Yeah, yeah, so do I, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Harry, my husband, thinks I'm completely <laughs> mad. And on purpose, he makes me, he like pushes me on them as a joke. And I, yeah. I freak out. Like, do not yeah. step on the three drains. <laughs> so that's so Harry's doing the right thing, right? Because what you're meant to do is expose yourself to it. So you're meant to walk across the drains and realize, okay, nothing bad's happened. So what am I worrying about? Expose yourself to these situations. So that's what I've learned to do is expose myself. So whether it is being socially anxious to go and meet a friend because it'll feel like it's going to be too intimate, a one-on-one lunch with them. Because, oh my God, what is if I don't entertain them? They're going to give me an Uber rating and it's not going to be good enough. You know, that's what I think, right? Just go and do it because actually you do it and you realize oh, that wasn't that bad. It's okay. And you expose yourself to these situations or you um, are afraid to set up a business because you think it's going to fail. But just go and do it. Scared to do a podcast. I know with you, Chris, you know, you were when you set up this podcast, which, by the way, is just so fantastic. You were just afraid that once people don't like it or listen to it or, or, or enjoy it. But then you do it and you realize, oh, my God, no, it's incredible. Right. And I think exposing yourself to those situations is really important. I think that's how you get over your fears. If you're scared of spiders, pick up a spider and throw it out a window or whatever. <laughs> and I think you have been pretty courageous in your life, Jamie, in terms of really following your dreams and not be, you know, you're not scared of putting yourself out there. And, you know, there's always a huge risk of failing, especially when you're in the public eye. Those failures will be public. But when do you think you have been the most courageous in your life? I think for me personally, my most courageous thing will be when I ask someone to marry me. I think that's pretty... Oh my pretty... God, do you think that'll be soon? <laughs> I, I don't know, but I think that's pretty. I think that's a pretty courageous moment, yeah. And you want that? That's something you want, is marriage? Oh, and yeah, I, I, and I envy, you know, you and every... I just think it's such a wonderful thing to be a part of a team. I think it's amazing. Yeah. Well, you and Sophie look very happy together. Oh, thanks, Chris. Well, she's, she's the sort of... One who really, really has helped me back to normality, I suppose, in lots of different ways. She's just great. And she has great values and all these different things. And, and so I think that would be probably when I do, if I do that or when I do that would be the most courageous thing. But um, also, I'd, I would say uh, um, strictly, as much as it sounds so lame. Yes, strictly. <laughs> Let's talk about strictly. We loved it. <laughs> Harry and I, every week. And also... I mean, the Jamie that I knew did not dance. <laughs> no. Where did this come from? Because uh, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. I honestly, mentally, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. And that sounds weird. You're like, well, how can it be? You're, you're training from 8 a.m. until 9 p.m. at night. Um, you are learning a dance move that you have no idea what you're doing. It's so technical. As you know, dancing is so technical. It's like learning a... <laughs> it's like learning how to freaking play tennis in two days I mean it's so technical and so hard and switching between Latin and ballroom and all these different things is just impossible and going out and performing in front of 13 million people and 13 million people just thinking you're that posh blonde wanker from Made in Chelsea you know that's what they think so you have to try and change people's opinions and you're being judged and all these different things and and everyone's competitive and it goes on for 12 weeks it's really mentally tough and thank god i had done things in my life that were quite mentally strenuous 
because a lot of people, the reason why they didn't make it far when they could have been better than me or whatever it was, was because I was used to exposing myself to situations like that. So I, I was pretty headstrong. So when it came to the dance-offs and things like that, I was so far ahead of anyone because they would just crumble at it because they were so scared when I was just like, I was so ahead of that for some reason. But it was um, really tough. But the most incredible experience, amazing experience. And you said that the that it was a really life changing experience. Was it was it making it to the finals that was life changing, or was it something else about the competition? It was making it to the final. I think was life changing. I think it was changing. You know, career wise, I think it's hugely beneficial because thirty million people see that you're not just that posh idiot. But also it changed me because it made me realize that if you really put your mind to stuff, you can achieve for things. And that, again, sounds lame and cheesy, but it really is. I had no idea how to do a cha-cha or a salsa or things like that. And I never thought I was going to get it. And by Thursday, you think, oh, you can do it. So with enough hours and time, you can really do something, whatever it is. You can do it. I mean, you're never going to become an NBA basketball player if you're not, you know, you're not going to have to just suddenly do that for a week. But in, in sort of relativeness, you, you can. It also taught me that uh, kindness, how important it is to be kind. And I realized that I was quite a kind person, but it made me realize how, how far kindness goes. And that show, I was really kind to people on it. And I, and I come from a show made in Chelsea for so long, which was about fighting and arguing and all these different things. And then I went on to do Strictly and I was, went back to just being my kind self. And kindness is very important. But also the, the most important thing was not caring so much about what people think. You're never going to please everyone. As much as you want to try and please everyone, you're never going to. I went into a dance-off, my second dance-off, and I said, oh, I'll just check Twitter quickly. And on Twitter, someone had written, Jamie's the turd that you can't flush. (laughs) (laughs) And and it made me chuckle. And I just thought, that's, you know, what it's about. And when you get comments, when you get comments like that, or you get trolled, do you get trolled? I don't really get trolled, no. I, I don't... I don't think I have, I'm not opinionated enough or I'm not thinking to be trolled, I don't think so. But you know, there are definitely some people who appreciate me and some people who think I'm probably, I think I'm an idiot. And do you mind when people say that and they say horrible things or? Look, I, I'm, I think I'm much better than most people. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I think it affects everyone. And if it, does, if it doesn't affect you, then well done to you. But I think I would say I'm in the top 10% of people that it doesn't, that it affects less, for sure. It still affects me still irritates me, still annoys me, still sticks with me, but I could brush it off. But that's so funny, Jamie, because you're, because you're afraid of not being loved and liked, and yet it doesn't really bother you when someone... Yeah, because I think I've, tr- I've sort of... I wouldn't say conquered, because I don't think you've ever conquered your fears, but I think I've come to terms with it much more now. I could never find balance in life, yeah, ever. And life is totally about balance. It's not about having pleasure all the time. And experiencing these highs all the time, which I thought it was about. It's about balance. There are mundane times, there are amazing times, there are sad times, there's happy times. It's about balance. And I've realised that as I've got older. Okay, Jamie, so now we've come to the quick fire questions. What I really want to ask you is the moment in your life that changed you forever. The moment in my life that changed me forever would have to be. Um, oh, yeah. That, do you know what? That was a big one. When I did my rugby. I wanted to be a rugby player. That's all I wanted to do. I wanted to play for England and play sports. And, oh, yes. and when I was 17 years old, caught the rugby ball, ran across the pitch and, and 
dislocated my knee and snapped my ACL ligament. It meant I couldn't play sport again and pretty much to a, to a really great standard. But it was such a blessing in disguise because I would have tried to become a professional sportsman. I never would have made it because I was always getting injured. I was one of the people who was always injured. I was pretty talented, but I was just small and... And I would have tried to go down that route and it would never have happened. So it was the biggest blessing in disguise. And I think, honestly, that was the moment that changed it for me. I think that was the biggest Mm. change in my life. And sometimes the worst things that you think happen to you are the best things that happen to you in life. And trust me, that was the best thing that can possibly happen to me because I would never have achieved what I want to achieve, I don't think. Who inspires you the most? Who inspires me the most? Uh, Maybe my brother, I think. My brother, yeah. He's the smartest guy I know. He is the best husband and father I know, and he's just a good dude. Probably my brother. What is the book in your life that has given you courage? <laughs> it's a weird one. I read a book called Scar Tissue, which is by Anthony Kiedis. It's his, uh, it's his autobiography. It gave me courage because it made me realise that when you go to the real depths of hell in some places, it can bring you back. And, and also the book The Anxious Man by Josh Roberts. I really, honestly, I encourage people to read it. It's so great and so well-written and funny. Um, those two books are great. What is something that has improved your life? A habit or a routine? Ah, cold showers, cold therapy. 110%. It sounds weird. It sounds lame. Get up in the morning, have a cold shower after your hot shower. Do it, do it, do it. Do it for a minute, two minutes. Trust me, after a while, you'll see the results. It's amazing. Well, how does it make you feel? Sleep better, calmer, more relaxed, less stressed, less anxious. Everything. It's amazing. Any phobias or weird fears? Spiders I don't like. The dark I really don't like. Um, uh, I'm always scared that I'm going to lose my mind. <laughs> Honestly, that is like a big fear. I'm really scared that suddenly I'm going to be mad because <laughs> I'm always on the verge. So yeah, that is a big fear of mine, I think. And what would you do if you were not afraid? If I wasn't afraid, I would live in a place where it was hot, lovely, and it was great and fun, and I would have kids, and I would not be in the rat race of life so much. Do you think you will do that one day, Jamie? Oh, I hope so. Jamie, thank you so much for coming on Fear Itself. This has been an absolute joy. Oh, Cress, listen, can I just say to all of you listeners who listen to this, Cress is one of the most genuine, lovely, most beautiful people I know, and this podcast deserves all the recognition it's going to get. You're incredible. Oh, thank you, Jamie. No worries. Thanks, guys. The end. Thanks to Jamie Lang for joining me on the podcast. Next week, I'll be speaking to best-selling author, speaker, consultant and podcaster, Otega Uwagba. Keep up to date by liking, reviewing and subscribing to Fear Itself on your favourite podcast app. I always love to hear from my listeners. Let me know what you think about the show, if you've been inspired by any of the conversations, or simply just get in touch to tell me a bit about you. You can find me on Instagram. You've been listening to Fear Itself, presented by me, Cresta Bonus. This podcast was produced by One Fine Play. Executive producer is James Bishop. Editorial producer and editor is Ollie Giyu. Additional creative support from Selena Christophidis, Louise Berry, Jessica Williams, Emily Weller and Connor Foley. With music by Malt Mutton. Thanks for listening. Is this okay, guys, or is it really boring? Jamie, how could you possibly say this conversation is boring? It's so not boring. Are you sure? Honestly, why do you say such a thing? I don't know. Don't do it.
You could never be boring. You could never, ever be boring. Even if you try to be boring, you could not be boring. Let's leave that in there. 